Right now, we're going to look at the Bible. As I said, the Bible, we believe here, is the very Word of God. God speaks to us. It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so we look at it, carefully uh, understand it, and then speak it in a way that is faithful to the way that is written. And so we're going to hear God speak to us right now uh, through Exodus 35, uh, sentences 1 to 3 that will come on the screen behind me. says this, Moses assembled all the congregations of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a, have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall, not, uh, you shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. This is the Word of God. Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, one of the leaders, and uh, it's great to be moving through. This is the, the second last talk in the book of Acts, so we've traveled almost 14 weeks through this book, uh, and um, if you were with us last week, uh, we looked at Exodus 33 and 34 uh, as God is drawing a people together and dealing with their sin and how it is that He is going to be a God among them. And then this week, we look at just three short verses on what God is teaching His people Israel about Sabbath, which, is, which literally just means to stop. A day that He is going to institute for His people where they are to stop working. And even though this is an ancient text, and the original audience were an ancient people, I think the implications are maybe more pertinent than ever. Years ago, so our family went on, used to go on day trips, and I can't lie, they weren't particularly exciting. And on one, on one afternoon, we went to Warragamba Dam. And I know what you're thinking. He's like, you lucky ducks. You got to do that as a family. Wow. But um, at the end of the, the sort of day when we're about to head home, there were two ways that you could get to the car park. And one was like this long, meandering, winding way for suckers. And the other was basically straight down. And, uh, and so I was there with my sisters, and I was the youngest of three. And they were a fair bit older and a fair bit faster. And we decided that we were going to race to the bottom. And because I was the only boy in the family, I felt like I had something to prove. And so I decided before it even began that no matter what, I was going to give it 110%. And so we kicked off this race, and it's down a hill. And to give you some context, the surface is kind of gravelly rocks. And then there's like a, ser a series of maybe like one foot um, retaining walls. So it would kind of go down and then drop and then down and then drop. So that's how it was kind of organized. And so we're running down this. And by the first one, my sister had already bailed. I was like, I knew it, weak, right? She's got no resolve. And so we keep going. But my second sister was like, she was like a state athletics runner, so she was super fast. I was like, it's not going to be so easy with her. But I kept charging, and about two kind of retaining walls later, she bailed out as well. And I was like, I've done it. I've won. And at that exact moment, I also realized that I'd hit the land equivalent of like terminal velocity. And I, there was no way that on this surface I was going to be able to stop. And the problem was that if you keep going down, there's like a massive barricade that even if you jump, jump it's like an eight-foot drop into the car park. And so I was like, at this point, I just had a decision to make. I'm either like, I either chance it over the wall, which is potential hospitalization or death, or just take a dive and see what happens. And so I took the dive, and the gravel just ate me up like sandpaper on butter. I was just like, you know, when you're just sitting down, and you just close your eyes, and you just, you just feel stinging. Everything just stings. And that was, that was my abiding memory of going to Warragamba Dam. But if you rewind that moment just a little bit to that moment where I realized that at one point I could not keep going and yet I couldn't stop, if you could just bottle that feeling 
I would say that's how most people kind of feel right now in Sydney. We feel like life is going so quick that I cannot keep going at this pace. Something's got to give. And yet at the same time, when they consider stopping, they're just like, I can't imagine that either. And so it's this horrible feeling of just being stuck that most people feel at once too busy and yet unable to stop and kind of trapped, feel powerless to doing anything about it, almost feel resigned to the fact, like I was running down that hill, that the only way that this is going to end is in some kind of a crash some kind of a major mental breakdown or moral failure. That's the only way that this thing is going to slow down. The truth is we're going too fast. If you are here and you're even a secular person, you're completely unconvinced of the claims of Jesus, it's probably the case that you're going too fast. That in Sydney, we're moving too fast to really think deeply about things, let alone spiritual things. We're moving too fast, if you're a follower of Jesus, to really contemplate God and who He is and what it means to commune with Him. We're moving too fast to invest in significant relationships. We're going too fast to even enjoy many of the good gifts that God has given to us. We're moving too fast to consider the plight of the lost and moving too fast to even be, ironically, genuinely productive. We're just moving too fast. God has drawn a people together to himself in the book of Exodus, a group of people who have been generational slaves, 400 years of slavery, 400 years of 24-7 work, no break, no day off, no annual leave, and the first thing he is going to teach them is how to stop. And if we understand the implications of this correctly, we'll see that even for us in a modern context like now, God is still calling us to stop. So I'm going to pray that as we open his word, that he would open our hearts to hear it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the God of rest that you made all things, that you are the creator and sustainer of all things, that by your mighty hand you made the heavens and the earth, that you created all living creatures and you made us in your image to be like you, that when we work we get to experience what it is to create in a small way, but that we are also called to accept our limitations as humans and to rest, to stop and to trust you that you are sovereign over all and that we are not. And so, Father, we pray that as we behold you in your word today, that your spirit would give us eyes to see, that we'd see our own sinfulness, that we'd see your grace and goodness to us in Jesus, and that we'd see your good will for our lives. And Father, we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, this week, in case you didn't notice when Gav was reading it out before, we're looking at three verses. That is a tiny portion. To give you some context, last week we looked at two chapters, the week before that a chapter, the week before that five chapters. Why are we slowing down to look at just three verses? Well, if you're cynical, you might be like, well, talking about Sabbath and rest is a bit on trend in some Christian circles. So as an inner city Christian church, we're kind of keeping up with the Joneses spiritually and we're going to focus in on on this thing called Sabbath. That could be one reason. But there is a better reason than that. If you've been reading along in the book of Exodus, if you've been doing the daily readings, you will have noticed that something shifted around chapter 19. It's the halfway point in the book, and there's a major theological shift in it where it goes from God saving his people to showing them how to live as his free people. And from chapter 19 to 35, you get four sections that are just on Sabbath. It's repeated over and over, which makes it the most repeated theme other than the presence of God and atonement. 
And so it's getting at something here, and we've skipped over it in the other weeks with the, with the plan to, on this week, go back and look through everything Exodus 19 to 35 teaches about the Sabbath. But to give you some context on where we are, especially if, ever, if you haven't been with us, here's how the book divides. It'll come up on the slide for you, but the two halves of the book are kind of divided like this. The first half is all about God saving his people. He says to them in Exodus 14:4, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. This is the whole theme of the first half of the book. They're slaves, they are powerless, they are under the greatest power in the Near East, in North Africa at that time, the greatest world power in Egypt, and they have no way out. And God says, don't worry about it, I'm going to save you. He sends plague after plague, he, he saves them miraculously, parts the sea and brings them out into safety. And so the whole second half of the book is now, what's it going to look like to live as freed people? They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. There was nothing they did that made them better than other people. God simply saved them. He didn't say, if you obey me, I will save you. He just said, you have to sit still and I will save you. And so now, when we get all these laws, he's not saying, if you obey these, I'll save you. He's saying, because I've saved you, this is how you now live as free people. And so the theme for the second half of the book is Exodus 19, 4-6, when he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. His plan for Israel is, he says, I'm going to gather you together as my people, And you're going to be different from all these ancient Near Eastern cultures and nations. You guys are going to be set apart and different. You're going to live differently. So that when the other nations look in on your nation, they will see that you worship a true and living God. He says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. And what is a priest meant to do? It's meant to be a go-between between humans and God. So how can a whole nation act like a priest? Well, he's saying, when you obey me, when you live out my design... You will act like a go-between between the nations and I. They will look in and see, gosh, that's what it looks like to live under the true and living God, the one creator. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments. And Gav that week gave us the thought experiment of imagine if a whole country lived out those Ten Commandments, what life would be like there, and it would be unimaginably good. And the idea is that if, as they obey God, they're going to live out what it means to be the people of God. And so the first reference that we get to Sabbath is right there in the Ten Commandments in the first set. And in Exodus 20, this is the first thing that we read about this thing called Sabbath. In Exodus 28 to 11, it says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So Israel are to be holy and different from the nations around them. And just think how radically different even this command was from the nation they just had spent their life in. In Egypt, it was endless production and productivity. It was endless work. And here, God is saying to them, no, you're going to be different. Every day, you're going to work for six days, and on the seventh day, the entire nation stops. Nobody can work. Everybody gets a day off every single week. And do you notice what the reason for it is there? 
He says, because God created the earth, the heavens and the earth, in six days, and then he rested. So what they're doing is every single week, they're rehearsing the creation story as a nation, as a reminder that this is who they worship, the creator God. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been in a shopping center on a day when you've forgotten what day it is, and suddenly the entire shopping center goes quiet, and you realize it's because everyone's observing a minute's silence. And no matter where you are, you stop where you're standing, you stay still, and you go very quiet, and you remember the sacrifice of soldiers who laid down their lives to win the freedoms that we currently have. That's what the moment silence is for. Everybody sort of goes quiet, and you have one minute just to think on those things. Well, here, God is saying to Israel, every week, everything stops. No more hammering, no more sowing, no more reaping. Everything stops. And on that day, you'll remember that the God who made the heavens and the earth saved you out from under Pharaoh in Egypt. It was like a little story that they rehearsed every single week as a reminder so that when their kids were like, hey, why don't we do any work today? They'd be like, well, let me tell you a story. And it draws them back to Genesis 1 to 3. Built into the fabric of life in Israel was this rhythm to remind them that you were saved and you were saved from under slavery to a God who loves you and a God who created the heavens and the earth. And so it was to remember who it was that they were and who it was that they worshipped. But there's something else that we learn. The next passage as we move on is in Exodus 24. And we see that the Sabbath was to teach them to rely on God, to demonstrate that they didn't rely on themselves or any of the local divinities who claimed to be God, but God himself. In Exodus 24, it says, For six years you were to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among you will get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods, and do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the festival of a harvest of the first fruits of the crops you sow in your, in your field. Celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. What is he doing here? God is saying to them that one of the things you're going to keep is a Sabbath day each week, but also there's going to be a Sabbath year. So there's going to be a whole year every seven years where you don't plow the fields. And as well as that, you're getting the ancient equivalent of kind of annual leave. There's going to be three festivals every year to remember how it is that God saved you. And those would be basically holiday weeks. He is building into the life of Israel rest, but he's also building into the life of Israel inefficiency. They cannot work 24-7. They cannot endlessly plow the land. Do you notice what he said there? On that Sabbath day, he says, it's not just that you get to rest, but you can make someone else work for you. Everybody gets to rest. He says, even the donkey and the ox, am I being clear now? Everything rests. Nothing keeps going. Because what it meant was that they were going to have to trust God, that they couldn't endlessly work and work and work. They would have to trust that even though they were just letting things lie, that God would provide for them. And in this way, they were radically different from the culture they had come from in Egypt. 
but radically different from the nations around them. It wasn't about plowing the ground endlessly. God was saying that's not what he had built his creation for. I mean, even some of the environmental concerns that we're facing at the moment are because the, the earth cannot be plowed endlessly. We cannot keep kind of trying to get every last drop out of it. He's built into it an inefficiency and a need to trust him for provision. And so the Sabbath day and year and so on were meant to be a reminder that they needed to rely on God. And so here they get a clear rest day, but they get annual leave and a seventh year, a sabbatical year, which is where we get the the term sabbatical, if you've heard that, that often after seven or ten years, people will take an extended time off. It comes from this principle. And here they're to do this so they might rely on God. But as we travel further in the book of Exodus, we see that we continue to learn what God is implementing this Sabbath for. In Exodus 31, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe observe my Sabbaths, for it will be a sign between me and for you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do, not, uh, who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is of, as of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. He's saying this Sabbath day, and Sabbath, Shabbat, just literally means to stop. This day of stopping, this day of rest, was meant to be a sign between them and God that they were his people. That he saved them and he is the one who dictates how they're to live their life. And so that as they live in this, it's a sign that they're in covenant with the living God. But notice also what it says, that it's modeled after God. He's saying if God rested, you were to rest. Now, what does it mean that God rested? Was it that like he, he'd, as he was making the heavens and earth, he just way overcooked it, he took no smokos, and so he's hit like six days, and like, I'm, I'm tapped out. I just need a day to take it easy. We know that's not the case. It says in Scripture that God is not like humankind. He doesn't need to rest. He wasn't exhausted. What was the Sabbath day for? After he'd made everything and humankind, He created a space in which to enjoy his creation with his people. That's what happened on the Sabbath day. It was God in fellowship with the only people, the only creature on the earth made in his image. And he made that day to enjoy fellowship with them, to be with them. That's what the Sabbath was for. And we see it even in the book of Exodus that to find, to be in the presence of God is where we find rest. Even last week, as we looked at Exodus 33, 14, look what it says. It says, The Lord replied, this is speaking to Moses, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. To be at peace with God in His presence, in His creation, is where we find true rest. And that's why, if you're wondering why we don't talk much about Sabbath, or why it is that you wouldn't be put to death for not keeping Sabbath, it's because it's different this side of the cross. In Hebrews 4, we read this about the Sabbath and how it's fulfilled in Jesus. It says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work. And again in this passage he said, 
they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long, uh, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, whom, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Here we see that the, the, the Sabbath was a tradition that pointed to a day when God would fellowship with his people permanently. And we know from last week that the privilege was won by Jesus, that when Jesus died on our behalf and atoned for our sin, it paved the way for him to send his spirit into the heart of every single believer. So that now if you're someone who follows Jesus, the Bible speaks of you as a temple of God, the place where God dwells. Because Jesus has dealt with your sin, God can actually dwell with you. And this is the peace that, that Jesus won. And not only that, when he died and rose again, he secured the day when there will be an eternal rest, when we'll be with God in his new creation, free from indwelling sin, forever to enjoy fellowship with him. That that Sabbath day that he created right at the beginning will finally be fulfilled and we'll be one endless Sabbath day together. And so because of that, because this reality was fulfilled in Jesus, we no longer have to keep Sabbath by law. In Colossians, in the book of Colossians in 2, 16 and 17, Paul, uh, the, one of the apostles, is writing on this very issue. And he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He was saying the Sabbath in the Old Testament was something that Israel kept because it pointed to Jesus. And now that Jesus has come and fulfilled it all and, and fulfilled the reality, it is no longer a law to keep Sabbath. And so then the question becomes, well, why look at all this stuff on Sabbath then? It really, in the end, I guess it's like, oh, well, it's just for a people at that time. But here's what's still true. It's not the case that as a, a follower of Jesus now, it's somehow a sin to not keep Sabbath, to not keep a 24-hour period on a Saturday it would be where you are doing no work. It's no longer a sin. It's no longer law but it is wisdom. It's a wise pattern that our Creator has, has created. And to go against it is to go against the grain. Unlike some of the members here who are quite skilled in woodwork, I myself was, uh, I guess the technical term was a battler. But in school, we had to, everyone had to roll through compulsory subjects. And one of them, of course, was woodwork. And, we, and because it was like, it was only six months that only gave you the most basic things. And no, no matter what I did, even if I was applying myself, where everyone else's came out pristine, mine was just, it just somehow came out munted. Oh, we, had to, we had to build a, it was a car one time, which was a generous way of describing it. It was li literally just a wedge of wood. So a triangle was all you had to cut and then put sticks through it with round wheels. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get the triangle shape right anyway, which is the simplest of all shapes. And then I couldn't get the wheels round, so they just kind of like clunked along. It was just, you know, it was a battle from end to end. The one thing that I actually remembered from it that has been useful is they always said, and I probably remembered it because it rhymed, never playing against the grain. So wood has a grain. There's a way that it sort of, I don't know, flows. Look, I'm, I told you I'm not a woodwork guy, right? It's, I'm not a carpenter. But um, 
but if, you, if you're playing against the grain, you'll find out pretty quickly that it's not going to work. You start pulling out chunks of wood, it just, it barely goes with it. But if you go with the grain, it's quite smooth. One person has said this in thinking about Sabbath and the rhythms that God has implemented of work and rest. He says, oh, not that guy, That's, we'll come to that one, sorry. <laughs> but a great quote all the same. It says, if you go against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. See, right now, it is not law to keep Sabbath, but if you don't, if you don't have a 24-hour period of rest each week, you're going against the grain of the universe. You're out of sync with the rhythm that God has created. See, it's not a sin, but it's not very wise. It's not a sin to walk around carrying a table over your head, but it's not very wise. It's not a sin to keep a viper in your bed, but I would say it's not very wise. And in the same way, it's not a sin to not practice a day of rest, but it's not very wise either. There is a pattern here in the Bible that is established. Six days work, one day rest. And defy it to your own peril. Another author writing on the the patterns of binge working and then binge resting that we experience in our culture, Tim Chester writes this, he says, Our society has adopted a pattern of 48 weeks of work and four weeks of rest. We overwork for most of the year and then binge rest for four weeks. But this was not the pattern for which we were made. We need holidays because our normal lives are so out of balance. The sustainable answer is not an annual holiday, but to get back to a biblical pattern of work and rest structured around a single week. It's doubtful if holidays are good for us. Eight out of ten people work extra hours before going away. One in three finds the days before a holiday the most stressful of the year. Most say they feel as stressed as ever by the end of their first week back. When your pattern is 48 weeks work and four weeks rest, then your holidaying is everything. People speak of working for their holidays. Christmas letters typically consist of holiday itineraries. That is the sum of people's lives. Life has become week after week of toil for two weeks in the sun. It's out of sync. It's life at 8,000 revs. In fact, I asked this question earlier in the year, and it's worth asking again. If you had no annual leave, no uni break, whatever it is, for whatever context you're in, could you sustainably keep working for more than a year or two? If that's the case, it's probably the case that your work and rest balance is out of sync. What God gives us is a sustainable pattern week in and week out of good work and good rest. A time to slow down and to enjoy His good creation, to stop and to contemplate the fact that we are not relying on ourselves but on God. And so as we pull back into the book of Exodus, we come now to the final mention in in the section of 19 to 35 where we read this. In Exodus 35, 1-3, God says, Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath day, uh, sorry, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. You know what's interesting about that passage, as you look at that passage in light of the three that have gone before it, is that it doesn't tell you anything new about the Sabbath. There's no new information. There's a bit about like not lighting a fire or whatever. 
But the vibe is there's really nothing new that it's telling you about, about the Sabbath. So why is it in there? It's like God is having to say again and again and again and again and again to these people, you need to stop, you need to stop, you need to stop. After 400 years of work, 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 he's saying stop. It reminded me of this. It, to give me some kind of a sample of it, how many people have seen the movie Goodwill Hunting? Okay, all right, so that's a fair, a fair portion, okay. To, to give you some, like a little bit of backtracking then, it's a story about a guy who is... Um, Basically, like he's working class and a troubled youth, but also a genius. It's, like, it's a middle upper class white man's fantasy about being able, to, being able to hold your own in like a bar brawl, but also in a boardroom. So it's like, it's that sort of vibe. Anyway, this was Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's breakout film. And uh, they, in, the, in the movie, um, Matt Damon plays Will, Will Hunting? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it should be right. Uh, and, uh, and he's the guy who's this troubled youth, whatever, eventually he ends up uh, seeing a counsellor and this counsellor sort of takes him under his wing. Their first encounter is a pretty harsh one. Will uses his, uh, his intellect to kind of, as a bit of a defence mechanism and in the first meeting he just eviscerates the counsellor, just lays his whole life out before him to the point where this counsellor almost doesn't want to come back to him again but he decides he's going to invest in this guy and they form this kind of mentor relationship. And the peak of it is kind of at the end of the film. It doesn't give away too much. 20-year-old film. It's on you. But at, at the end of the film, he's, there's this interaction with him where he's trying to tell Will that it's not his fault that his father wasn't around. And so he says to him, it's not your fault. And Will's like, I know, I know. He's like, it's not your fault. He's like, I know. I know it's not my fault. And then he keeps saying it to him and getting closer and closer to him. And eventually, Will starts to get a bit angry about it. He's like, like back off, man. And then he keeps saying it and saying it and saying it until eventually he just breaks down crying and then hugs him. And it's like he had to say it again and again because he could see that he wasn't getting through to him, that it's not your fault. So he says it again and again and again. And in that moment, Will Hunting goes through the, the full stages of like denial through anger and then grief all right in front of him and then eventually kind of accepts it as true. I feel like this is what's happening in the book of Exodus. God keeps saying to the people of Israel, you need to stop. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we, we, you're right. Too busy, 400 years, it's a long time. You're on us. And he's like, yeah, but you need to stop. They're like, yep, yeah, sure, sure. You need to stop. All right, back off, God. All right, we've heard you now. And then eventually, maybe, they accept it. And you know what? That might even be where you're at today. We did a series earlier in the year on work and rest and Sabbath. And you might be at the point where you're like, you're right, I do. I need to slow down, True. But really in your mind, you're already planning to go back to how you do life already. Some of you might be at the point where you're like, all right, Jeremy, <laughs> it's going on four talks now. All right? like, uh, it's, yeah, I'm sure I can slow down if I could just get a time machine and go back to when I didn't have kids or work or responsibilities. Or maybe you're like, sure, I could slow down if I had like a billion dollars and I could just play around all day. Yeah, then I could, then I could slow down. Or maybe you're at the point where you're like, I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm... I'm ready to do something. Wherever you're at, I encourage you, it is biblical wisdom to take a day of rest, a Sabbath, to stop. And to make it as, as simple and practical as I can, here are four things that you do. Like, take a time this week. If 24 hours is too long, take a portion of time, like a significant one, four to six or something like that, where you do four things, and it's this. To stop, play, commune, and praise. So to stop is simply 
what the word Sabbath means. You've got to stop working. That means not doing anything that is work. In the Bible, it goes into great detail in the Old Testament about what that is. So the whole thing about not lighting a fire is you couldn't cook. You couldn't prepare anything. Don't sweep. Don't do anything that you don't enjoy doing. Don't do any work. Stop. And it goes into great detail because he knows our inclination is to work. We want to do stuff. But we need to take a day that is fully restful. We don't do anything that is work. And this is difficult because it takes planning. Because what we're used to doing, because we have so much technology at our fingertips, you can just do things whenever. You can go to the shops whenever. You know, there was a time when you had to get your petrol on a Friday afternoon and there'd be lines out the petrol station because gas stations were closed. Gas stations. Am I living in the United States? What have I ever called it at gas stations? Petty stations were closed on weekends, so you couldn't get any petrol. You had to get it all on a Friday. And so there was some kind of preparation that had to happen for the weekend that's now not there. You can just do whatever, whenever, but it's not that helpful. In order to have a day of rest, it means pushing your chores to earlier in the week. There's a woman in our group who does her shopping in her lunch break at work so that when it comes to a Sunday, she can take a full day of rest and not have to go and get anything from the shops. There might be other things, like if you're going to a party, buy a present earlier in the week so you don't go to the shops on a Saturday and then get caught in a four-hour vortex where you're like, where did my whole time go? And it hasn't been a restful day because I went to get one thing. Or you go to Bunnings to get something and again, get stuck there sinking snags and whatever till midnight <laughs> when, you're only, when you're only meant to go for a few minutes. Whatever it is, it's clearing out, it's clearing out a, a portion of time where you do no work, where you stop. That's the first thing is to stop. The second one then is, though, once you have cleared out time, once you've taken out work from a space of time, to then put in things to enjoy. God enjoyed making his creation. And on the Sabbath day, he enjoyed it with his people. It was a sense in which the reason I chose the word play is because whenever you're engaging in creation in a way where you're not trying to produce something, you're playing. You're just enjoying it. Because the problem is, oftentimes when we have clear space, we don't know what to do with it. I saw this week a, a little meme that kind of describes it, of, um, of people sort of getting ready for their, looking forward to your day off all week. And then, is that Tarantino? Yeah. What is he doing? And getting to that day in the week when you finally actually have some time off, and you're like, I just don't know what to do with myself. And you end up wasting the, the entire day. It's not restful because you just fluffing about not doing anything. On this, we can skip, we can move on from Tarantino's face. It's, yeah, it's, it's a thing to behold. But um, one of the principles then is to then think carefully about what are the things, the way that God has designed you and the gifts that he's given you, where you can play, where you can enjoy his creation. And if you're out of ideas because TV and work has killed your imagination, go and speak to the experts, kids. Kids know how to play. Getting them to work is a challenge, but not like slave labor work. Just, I'm talking about just like just tying their shoes, right? They can, find, they can find 50 games to play before they do a two-minute task of tying their shoes. They're great at playing. So maybe as you think about what would you do with a day where you're actually cleared out to rest is to play. A few years ago, our missional community, that's our small groups here at City Light, went to uh, Sky Zone which is largely designed for kids, and we were a group of adults there. And yes, a few got a little bit carried away 
playing games against kids like dodgeball. But whatever. A few, a few people had a Billy Madison moment. But it's all right. We came back from that. But it was great. A great way to engage in God's creation, in his design, the way he's made our bodies and, and gravity and all the things that go with it. Whatever it is, to do something that involves play. And with this, I would say, I would warn you, stay away from screens or, or your phone, leave your phone behind or your watch to just clear out time to enjoy God's good creation, to rest. And that brings us to the third one then, to commune. It's a time to spend with God. The sweetness of that time in many ways is, is sweetened by spending time with God. Whether that's in the middle of the day or the beginning of the day, kind of like Gav was speaking about last week, that it might be a day where you focus on who God is. The Sabbath day, it says again and again, was holy to the Lord. There is a vertical aspect to it. It's a time to clear out busyness from life so that you can sit and contemplate the greatness and goodness and glory of God. And to spend unhurried time with Him, your Creator. And that follows on to the next one, that then what logically tends to happen is we praise Him. C.S. Lewis says that when we praise, it doesn't simply express the joy, but it completes it. That the reason we say something out loud when we're enjoying it is because it actually makes it more enjoyable. And so part of having a day of rest and enjoying His good creation and just playing, part of that then is praising Him for it. Our kids, when they, when they get excited about something, and this is typical of kids, they just can't help talking about it. My wife and I have a term for it. We call it the chuffed zone. When they're really, when they're really excited about something, they just, they just pour forth praise about it. They can't stop but, but speak about how good it is and how good a time they're having. And it's a shame that as adults we kind of unlearn that because God's gifts are good and He is worthy of praise for them. And so this would be the fourth element to a restful day is to actually acknowledge the good things that God has given you and to praise Him for it, that it might not just express the joy but complete it. And so over this week, I'll challenge you to take an extended period of time, either yourself as an individual, if you're married as a couple, if you're married with kids then as a family, where you're going to stop you're going to play when you were going to commune and when you're going to praise. And then it might be a witness, just like it was for Israel, that we worship a God who has created a pattern of work and rest, who is worthy and faithful of our worship, and that we might be unhurried people and that it might be a witness to a busy world that there is a God who is alive and worth living for. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you give good gifts. We praise you that you give us limitations and that we thrive in acknowledging and living within these limits. That you have set a pattern for work and for rest and we pray that we would take this up as a gift from you, that we might worship you with all our lives, that we might clear out time to meet with you in your word, to pray to you, to enjoy the good things you have given us and to rest from our work. And Father, we pray that we would do this, not that we might be glorified, but that you might be glorified, that you might be seen as a good and glorious God who transforms lives and who is good to live for. And Father, we pray all these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.